Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm about to explore a little hidden history of Elizabethan London with Anna Beer, lecturer in English literature at the University of Oxford and author of Patriot or Traitor, The Life and Death of Sir Walter Raleigh. We're beginning on the Strand, where in the 16th century, Walter Raleigh owned a vast and beautiful townhouse known as Durham House, given as a gift by Elizabeth I. As we walk and talk, Anna's going to tell me the story of the rise and fall of one of our most famous explorers, all linked to London's surviving but hidden history. So Anna has brought me to Durham House, which is on the Strand. It's just off the river. So this was the one-time home of Sir Walter Raleigh. Um, so where exactly is it? We are exactly between the City of London, a financial heart, and a place like the Tower of London, and Westminster. And this stretch of the Thames was where you had your palace, if you could have a palace and move between those two centres of power, the city and Westminster. Okay, so in the time of Raleigh, what would it have been like? What would it have looked like? It's very hard to imagine now as we stand with traffic going round and and building everywhere. But this was a row of stunning palaces, many of them built 200, 300 years earlier, many of them owned by bishops and the great people of the land, but surrounded by market gardens, orchards, and of course the river, which was the main artery of London at that time. Okay, so what was the history of the palace? Where, when was it built and and how did it come to be owned by Raleigh? Raleigh getting or being given Durham House by his queen, Queen Elizabeth I, was an absolute coup for Walter Raleigh. It had only just become Sir Walter Raleigh. In the end, he was a fifth son of a Devon gentleman. He'd grown up in a farmhouse hundreds of miles away from London. And to be given a bishop's palace, because that's what it was. It had been taken from the Bishop of Durham and given to this this commoner, (laughs) Raleigh. He was punching way above his weight and and he absolutely loved it. And what is the history of the palace? So this was an Episcopal palace before and then Anne Boleyn lived here. So there, it had, it's quite steeped in history already, but generally Absolutely. royal history, how did Sir Walter Raleigh come to acquire it? That is the, the million dollar question about Sir Walter Raleigh. He'd only just been given his knighthood. And to be, there we've got traffic going by, um, 
to enter this rarefied world was a huge coup for this this man. And he was given the palace as a reward for his service to Queen Elizabeth I. And it was perhaps the capstone of a remarkable year. As I say, he got his knighthood. He'd got the patent to explore in the Americas, which led to Virginia, settlement there. And money beyond anybody's wildest dreams. Wow. So what would it have looked like? Well, Raleigh took it over when it was already a great palace, but he made it even better. He, he, when he finally lost it, which is a completely other story, but when he finally lost the palace, he said he'd spent over £2,000 on furnishing it. And that is a lot of money. Yeah, that's a lot in today's standards. <laughs> it is, yes. And you get little details. There was a burglary in 1602 when it had the palace for you know, nearly 20 years. And um, the burglars, they only took three things, but they were three pillowcases uh, embroidered with gold and silver and what have you. And that tells you something you know, <laughs> about the, the sumptuous uh, nature of the, of, of the palace. And again, in 1602, we know that he was supporting 40 people, that's four zero people in this building, uh, and 20 horses, of course, because stables alongside the market gardens, the fresh supply of water, made this bit of a paradise between the city and Westminster. But it is still remembered in the street names of London today. I mean, we are standing on Durham House Street. Yes, and although almost nothing of the palace survives, there is just one wonderful detail that does which is the cobbled slipway down to the Thames and that's just a reminder of its location location to have a palace on the Thames particularly for somebody with such strong ties to the the river and the sea as Raleigh was was crucial and the river would play such an important part in in his life there's a story that he had his own study looking out over the Thames and in Durham House he didn't just go for the silver pillowcases <laughs> and um, the porcelain and all the things he happened to pick up from ships that just happened across his path in the Atlantic, Spanish ships. But he also surrounded himself with the intellectuals, the questioners of his time. Oh, so fantastic. So he entertained some pretty interesting people here. Yes, interesting and potentially dangerous people. There were various inquiries into the kinds of conversations that were going on late into the night at Durham House. One amongst them is a man called Thomas Harriet, who, like Raleigh himself, but perhaps even more so, was a polymath, a great mathematician. He made the mistake of not publishing his work, so people didn't uh, recognise him in his own time. But Raleigh hired him in the first instance to help with navigational mathematics. Uh, it's crucial to Raleigh's voyages to have somebody who understood things that I don't about latitude and longitude mm -hmm. and the position of the sun. But Harriet was also, as it were, a sceptic, uh, had been accused of atheism, as Raleigh would be. And being accused of an atheist in the 1590s is, is not really a very good career move. So Durham House was the sort of pinnacle moment in Raleigh's career. So he was, in today's standards, he was a bit of a nobody, wasn't he? He was fairly common. How did he rise in power? How did he come to court? And that's a very good question. It's something that's preoccupied me when writing my book, because you... If you look back over somebody's life, you kind of assume that they, they reached that position and then you actually do the research. And so how did Raleigh get to such a position under Queen Elizabeth? He went to the wars, which is one way for a nobody, as you put it. I mean, he was the fifth son of a gentleman, so you know, he had a little bit of status in society. But he went to the wars in Ireland and not only was he 
a good soldier, as some would say a vicious and brutal soldier. He did what had to be done. But the point was he could defend policy and he could communicate and he would write these remarkable, powerful letters back home. And I think that's one of the reasons he came to the attention of Elizabeth I, as somebody who could perhaps manage a very difficult situation for the English in Ireland, ongoing over the entire time that Raleigh was there. And so he came to the attention of Elizabeth through his military service in Ireland. But once he came to her attention, that's when he simply exploded onto the scene. And it is one of those cases where he was, well, he was very, very attractive, it has to be said. I've seen the portrait miniature <laughs> yeah. on it. It, it. Well, any man who can, <laughs> who can wear a ruff like that and flowers in his hair and still scream heterosexuality is doing something, you know. He's uh, very handsome. <laughs> he's very <laughs> handsome. And then a few years later, he's painted with two enormous pearl earrings in his ear. In fact, I wanted to call the book The Man in the Pearl Earrings, but it didn't, didn't get past my publishers. And it isn't just about the good looks. It, he's got charisma. He's got immense quick intelligence. He's got wit, very much a 16th, 17th century word. But he's also a very canny political operator. And I think Elizabeth, who knew how to get the best from the men around her, saw what she could get from Raleigh. And it's no coincidence, for example, the one naval defeat that the English suffered, the one ship that was captured in the long, long war with Spain, called the Revenge, captained by one of Raleigh's cousins, second cousins, Elizabeth turned to Raleigh and said, uh, could, you, could you turn this kind of little blip, this defeat, into a glorious moral victory? And the English have always been rather good at writing that kind of history anyway, but Raleigh stepped up. Um, so as a propagandist, Elizabeth used him. As somebody to manage other courtiers, Elizabeth used him. And I think she also quite liked him. <laughs> that leads on to my next question. What, <laughs> what was his relationship with, with Elizabeth? Because there is... A lot of famous rumour mm. that they had a love affair, that she was in love with him or he was in love with her. What do you think? I am pretty sure that Queen Elizabeth I would not risk having a full-on love affair with somebody like Sir Walter Raleigh. I also feel that having seen the language she uses with two of the men in her life, that's Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, and then Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex, the word love does appear uh, repeatedly in in correspondence, you, you sense that there's emotion there. I think with Raleigh, what you get is an eroticized power politics between the two of them. It was a political relationship, but played out with the language of love. But that doesn't stop it being a very close relationship. A flirtation? A lot of flirtation. There's a wonderful moment when Raleigh, who you know, put a pen in his hand and he is away. He's not just a soldier. He's not just a sailor. He's not just a pirate explorer. He's, he's a writer, first and foremost. That's certainly how I came to, to know him. And put a pen in his hand and he will write poetry that goes on for pages and pages and pages about just how wonderful Elizabeth is and gorgeous and et cetera, et cetera. It's quite repetitive and quite dull, actually, that poem. And she replies back very cynically with a very classy put down. So Raleigh is at a court in which everybody is picking up a pen and writing poetry, a crew of courtly makers, noblemen and gentlemen. And he writes to her, Fortune hath taken thee away, my love, my life's soul and my soul's heaven above. Fortune hath taken thee away, my princess, my only love. I, I could go on. I won't. Um, it goes on and on and on. And what interests me is that Elizabeth comes back at him reassuring him, but also patronising the hell out of him. Ah, silly pug, you know, my little lapdog, wert thou so sore afraid? 
mourn not my what, nor be thou so dismayed. And she ends her response to him with, by commanding silly, she calls him silly, which means innocent in those days, but also foolish. She tells Raleigh to get a grip, (laughs) revive again and live without all dread. The less afraid, the better thou shalt speed. The less afraid, the better thou shalt speed. And Raleigh was not shot of chutzpah. And I think Elizabeth liked that about him, that he would tell truth to power. That's why he kept on getting into trouble all the time. I think Elizabeth valued that in him until he went too far. Okay, so he had a rising career. He had a position as a courtier and he was also an explorer. How did Durham House reflect all of this? Durham House, as it were, were was the capstone on his life as a courtier. But he used Durham House as a centre for his colonial imperial operations. So he got in Thomas Harriet, as I've said, to do the, the maths and to recruit sailors and to manage ship design and things like that. But he also, when he came back or when Indigenous Americans were brought back to the UK, they would come to stay at Durham House. This is a dubious moment in English imperial history. On the one hand, you do have people coming back across the Atlantic and being introduced to European culture. And Raleigh, unlike many of his time, took trouble. Again, Thomas Harriet created a, an alphabet so that the two peoples could communicate, the, the English and the Algonquins. But what did those two men, Wankesi and Manteo, feel about their life in London? They were spectacles. They they were pretty close to animals at the zoo at the Tower of London. And when Raleigh wanted to push for his colonial project, he would take them to Parliament and they'd stand there in their skins, literally um, animal skins. So, but nevertheless, nevertheless, there is this sense that it was an eclectic community at Durham House. And again, this is what threatened people, that conversations were had there that weren't going on anywhere else in London. Okay. So, I mean, so he entertained people that he, I, I want to say collected, but that wouldn't really necessarily be the right word, um, that he met on his travels and he brought them back and, ha- and hosted them at Durham House. Yes. And they occupied a sort of queasy ground between being servants and honoured guests. I mean, these were chiefs in their own country. But it wasn't just the visitors from what would become Virginia or now North Carolina. As I say, scientists, mathematicians, astrologers, visiting dignitaries from wider elsewhere in Europe. All of these were coming to Durham House. John Dee, the astrologer, sat with Raleigh when when Raleigh came back from an expedition that he actually went on. He never went to Virginia, but he did go to look for El Dorado, the city of gold, up the Orinoco, as you do. Didn't find gold, but came back a transformed man. There's something about rivers and Raleigh. I always think it's, we're standing here and we cannot actually see the river anymore, but he, the, the, the palace was absolutely on, on the waterfront. And that was, as I say, what was important about that. And he could see everybody who was anybody traveling up and down this, this river, including the queen. And in a period when access was everything, personal contact with the monarch, knowing where the monarch was, this was her route between, say, the palace at Greenwich and Hampton Court or even further further afield. So this was a good place to be. It was a strategic place to be for Raleigh. So it was a political stronghold, so to speak. But what about, what about personally? So he was married to Bess Throckmorton. And it is said that, or some of his critics said, that the real power at Durham House lay with Lady Raleigh. What do you think about that? Well, it's a a typical smear, isn't it? Uh, Raleigh was 
becoming very powerful in the final years of Elizabeth's reign. And people looked to Durham House. And one of the ways they could throw mud at Raleigh was to say, actually, he was controlled by his wife. So Lady Raleigh and Sir Walter were very much a power couple by the end of Elizabeth's reign. And that gets you enemies. Everybody's looking to see who's going to succeed Elizabeth, but you can't talk about it. And one wrote, for example, that the Queen must be told uh, what's going on at uh, the chapter of Durham, uh, a nod towards its original ecclesiastical thing, where Rawley's wife is precedent, president presiding in power. And he describes Bess Throckmorton, Lady Raleigh, as Proserpina, who's the daughter of Zeus and abducted by Hades to be his queen, whereas Raleigh himself is the great Lucifer. So you've got this the monarchs of hell. This this building here is is presided over by these two truly evil, evil people. And as people watched the Raleigh's become more powerful, they thought of different ways to, to bring them down. And one was an all-out attack on Durham House. They thought if they could catch Raleigh plotting or with papers or what have you. In the end, they did something much cleverer with a guy who, in the end, was a fifth son of a Devon gentleman. They starved him of money and they dangled opportunities to, to be very foolish in front of him. And, and he... Yeah, they, they gave him rope and he hung himself. Who was that? They stood the, 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 the enemy. The, the, this particular enemy of Raleigh at that time was a, a nobleman called Henry Howard, Lord Henry Howard, who came from one of the great aristocratic families in England. And he really didn't like the fact that Raleigh, an upstart, was doing so well. Doing so well, but also positioning himself for the moment which would come one day when Elizabeth died and there'd be a vacuum oh wow okay okay so we're going to move on to you've talked a lot about the river mm-hmm. now i think we should go and look at the river and walk yes. along it um to our next destination and you can tell me about why the river was so important to raleigh and why it was important in elizabethan england okay so we're walking along the river thames towards westminster outside of what would have been durham house and what would have been raleigh's view from his study so to speak yes and that same study would become very important because in one of his many downfalls um, the first really serious one was in 1592 and he was put under house arrest at Durham House confined to quarters and his only view really was of the river so if Durham House being granted to Durham House was Raleigh's apotheosis his, his moment in the sun he in effect threw it all away because his great job with Elizabeth was to be captain of the guard. That means her personal bodyguard, complete access to the Queen at all times. And Raleigh thought it'd be a really good idea to get together with Bess Throckmorton, who was a gentlewoman of the Privy Chamber, also a member of that inner circle. And not only did they get together, they secretly married and they had a child. And even worse, because you can get away with that kind of thing in Elizabethan England, even worse, they lied about it to Elizabeth. And that, in the end, is what she could not forgive. And when the scandal broke, as it did in the summer of 1592, house imprisonment was just the beginning of a series of punishments that Elizabeth meted out to, to both Sir Walter and his wife, Bess. And so his only view, he was, he was locked in his house, he was sat yes. in his study, and his only view was of the river, which is 
must have reminded him of his career and his life at sea, which, I mean, let's talk about Raleigh as a, as a pirate and as ah, an yes. explorer. No, no, we mustn't call him a pirate. Okay. It's state-sanctioned warfare. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's useful if, you know, the pirates are on your side. And that was exactly Elizabeth's uh, policy with war. She didn't have enough money to fight war herself, so she'd use men who were willing to, not pirates, of course, men who were willing to fight for her and, and take a bit of you know, the rewards. That's exactly what Raleigh did for, for many years. He was very successful. He made his name as a soldier on land in Ireland, but he really came into his own as a leader of expeditions, mainly against the Spanish, against the treasure ships. And more importantly, certainly to Raleigh, is that he saw the war with Spain as part of a bigger picture, or he, he realised that England probably wouldn't be able to win the war against Spain just simply with yet another battle at sea, he decided that England needed a power base in the Americas. And that's one of the things that drove his desire to establish a colony in Virginia, and then later on to establish a colony in South America, in what's now Venezuela. So this boy who grew up on the estuaries of Devon, who was a sailor you know, in, in his blood, he had so many brothers, it's very hard to keep track of them, half-brothers who were all sailors as well. He simply headed to sea whenever he could. The irony was, by his own admission, he was a really terrible sailor. He got awfully seasick and he was a bit of an intellectual and he'd take a trunk of books with him. It sounds like he might actually have got bored on, on, board, on board ship. But for him, I, when I was thinking about what drove him out to the ocean, I mean, I get scared just going in a little steamer out to some rocks off the coast of Cornwall I think goodness the Atlantic is terrifying what drove him to do that and it wasn't just I think the quest for gold or for empire at sea he was in charge he was captain he was commander and I think he was a man who who needed that and wanted that and could do it very very well many people hated Raleigh the men who didn't were his men okay so he had a real connection to the water but he was also an intellectual. It's like a kind of, um, I suppose it's not the, not the most complimentary of two sort of gifts or interests, mm. is it? But um, what would, so we're walking, we're looking at the River Thames right now and looking over it. What would it have looked like in Elizabethan England? Well, a lot more rural than it is it is now. Um, but and also a lot busier than it is now. Um from small craft wherries ferrying people backwards and forwards. Remember, there was only one bridge um, to the royal barges going to and from the palaces. And to come back to where we just left, Durham House, with Raleigh under house arrest and seeing the river, his one chance, he thought, was to actually get through to Queen Elizabeth. And he saw her beginning a royal progress. And he struggled with the man keeping him. A cynic said all lameness was forgotten. He'd, Raleigh was very good at faking illness. He did it throughout his life. And then suddenly when it suited him, you know, the limp would go. But he, he leapt up, struggled and, and honestly tried to kind of leap into the Thames and, and, and get to his queen as she went by on the barge. Now, this is the stuff of legend, but it, it, it's the kind of thing he would do. It's the kind of thing he would do. So, yeah, so a much busier riverscape, a much more vital riverscape. And Raleigh knew it inside out. Every one of his expeditions, he'd be going up and down the Thames right to the North Sea. And he'd be recruiting men. They would run away. He'd hunt them down in the taverns. There's a wonderful note from him in a pub in Essex on the Essex marshes saying, you know, I finally managed to get a piece of paper. Just do this, do that. And... 
this, this was his, his landscape. And indeed, the ocean was further west. I think he knew every creek, every harbour in Devon and Cornwall. He was a very powerful figure down there. And of course, the Atlantic then. And what fascinates me is for a man who travelled so far and went to places that most of his contemporaries, his English contemporaries, never saw, is that when he's travelling in a canoe up the Orinoco, which is a terrifyingly huge landscape, so alien, he's constantly comparing it to what he knows at home. This bit's like the Thames at Woolwich, that bit is like a park near my house or what have you. And the women, of course, are as beautiful as the women back home. <laughs> That's amazing. So as somebody that we see as a great explorer, a great adventurer, he actually was quite deeply rooted to his home and to the politics of England. Yes, and, and I think the landscapes and the seascapes of, of his home of his home country. I mean, maybe every traveller does that. We always bring uh, our, our own territory with us and compare. But Raleigh does it, and he, he does it very beautifully and fascinatingly, whilst also enjoying, reveling in the, to him, exoticism of this, this brave new brave new world. Uh, he was always glad to get home, though. <laughs> so he had quite a, he, it was a quite a serious downfall with Elizabeth. He was very popular with her initially, and then he married Bess. And as a secret marriage, that was going against everything that she would have accepted. So that was his first major downfall. What happened? What happened after that? Did did he um, come back into favour with her? Well, again, the sea is very important here and Raleigh's experience as somebody who's uh, good at managing sailors and shipping and war because very conveniently Raleigh was under arrest. He was moved from Durham House to um, the Tower. Things were looking very bad. But then, then state-sanctioned naval warfare, pirates, <laughs> seized, seized the mother of the Dios, the mother of God, a immensely well-laden Spanish carrack, which had hundreds and thousands of pounds of goodies on it. By the time the ship came back into port, remember Raleigh's in the Tower of London, half of that had gone. When it came into port, everything else was going as well. It was chaos down there. And Elizabeth was canny. Uh, she knew that there was one man and one man only who was needed. And she got Raleigh out of prison. She sent him down to the coast and he sorted it out. He made sure that the money was recovered. He, he basically controlled the situation on the ground and that was his great gift. And that got him out of jail, literally. He also handed 80,000 pounds of the spoils from the ship to his queen. Okay, so he managed to, he managed to escape a sort of sticky end on that occasion. But on that occasion. <laughs> our next destination is Westminster and we're going to talk about the later parts of Raleigh's life and eventually his rather tragic downfall. Westminster... Strangely, it is where Raleigh finally met his end. I mean, he's a man who had more lives than a cat. He was a great survivor, but something was going to get him in the end. But Westminster and the Houses of Parliament were an important part of Raleigh's life in these years when he was in Virginia, when he was making his name in all sorts of different ways. And unlike one of his famous contemporaries, Francis Drake, and never confuse the two men, Unlike Francis Drake, who was also a member of Parliament, because that's what you did when you were a gentleman in those times. Francis Drake, I think, spoke about three words in Parliament. Raleigh was a, a great parliamentarian. I mean, he understood how it worked. Again, rather like those sailors down the south coast, he, he was a great fixer. And Elizabeth turned to him, Elizabeth I turned to him for that. So the fact that Raleigh, in the end, was 
executed at the Palace of Westminster is yet another irony of a life that was packed with ironies. Cool. And you're about to show me exactly where that was. Yes, it's very easy to miss. <laughs> life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So we're, we're sat in a rather peaceful little part of Westminster, right outside the Houses of Parliament, um, just off the road. And this is Old Palace Yard. Now, this is a particular, this is a particularly um, poignant area in the history of Raleigh. It is. I'm, I'm getting goosebumps, I have to say, because this is where his rich, over-rich, life came to an end and um, it's quite astonishing to find this little moment of peace surrounded by so much activity and the seat of power parliament there where Raleigh would have been a, uh, an MP he would have spoken he, and but this is also where, where he met his end and he was I mentioned that he went to El Dorado in search of the gold of El Dorado in the 1590s, well, he went again uh, as an old man and failed again to find those riches. There's a very long story about how he came to his end, which I don't have time for now, but by the time he came back from that voyage, he was broken in mind and body. He was very ill. He had malaria, severe malaria, and yet the Jacobean state still felt it was important to imprison him under close imprisonment uh, in the gatehouse prison here at Westminster. It's where you put your most dangerous people, including Guy Fawkes, who'd been here just 13 years earlier, because we're going back to 1618 now, October 1618. And finally, the government worked out what to do with Raleigh, and he was condemned on October the 28th, condemned to death. He was told a few hours later that he would not be hung, drawn and quartered which is a small mercy, uh, but he would only be executed. And then in the early hours of the 29th of October, he was brought his final breakfast in the gatehouse prison and then brought just a few metres, really, but with 60 armed guards. What were they thinking? He did not need that to the scaffold, which they'd been building throughout the night, his final night. It's uh, hard to imagine that night. (laughs) 
sitting here now, but it, you kind of feel it. Yeah, it's that so. It's it is haunting to think about somebody's final moments being in this in this exact place. So, I don't know, what exactly had he done <laughs> that had brought him here? I, I did warn you that it's it is very complicated, and once I get going on it, it it's very hard to explain. But his fundamental error was that in the earliest months of James I's reign, Raleigh had become involved, to what extent, everybody can make up their own mind, with a plot to overthrow James and put a woman on the throne, Arbella Stuart, one of James's cousins. Whether he was a patriot or whether he was a traitor is, well, that's why that's the name of my book. Uh, I want people to make up their own minds. James threw him into the Tower of London, where he waited and uh, languished for 13 years. And as he had done in 1592 with the sex scandal, the marriage to Bess Throckmorton, he bought his way out, or he attempted to buy his way out. In 1592 it worked because he could give his queen £80,000 from Madre de Dios, the boat that they captured, or he captured. In 1616, 1617, as I said, he went in search of gold. The deal was he'd be let out of the Tower of London, not pardoned, but allowed to go in charge of an expedition. And I suppose the hope was that he would find the gold. He'd come back, hand it over to James, and he could live out his years in, well, at least not in the Tower of London under sentence of death. It all went horribly, horribly wrong in ways which, as I say, pretty much broke Raleigh. And he says, he writes, my brains are broken. Until the final moment when he receives the sentence. And I, I think up until that final day, he... He was the great survivor. He was the somebody who could, the Houdini of Elizabethan Jacobean politics. He had always found a way out to wriggle out of the most desperate situations. And I think just at that moment, he realized this was the end. And something in him rallied, no pun intended, and something in him came to life again. And he gave, in that final 24 hours from the sentence being delivered, you'll be executed in the morning. He just put on the most magnificent performance. Why was he held here as opposed to the Tower of London? It was strategic on the part of the Crown. Raleigh had, in his first treason trial back in 1603, he was described as the best hated man in England until he stood up and defended himself. He said, I know I don't need a lawyer, I will defend myself. And he became a hero. That happened in 1603. King James did not want that to happen again. He did not want Raleigh to become a martyr. Now, 15 years later, he was finally being executed. So they tried to bury it on a bad news day. There was the law, or a good news day, rather, I should say. There was the Lord Mayor's pageant up in the city of London. And the Crown hoped, James hoped, that the crowds would go there. They would not come all the way west, as we've just walked, to Westminster for, you know, the small matter of an execution of a, of a has-been, a relic from Elizabeth's reign. They were completely wrong. So he was a popular figure by this point. By this point, he was a popular figure and growing in popularity. Certainly, a, a, um, he was a figure who people who were beginning to develop oppositional ideas or, or critiques of monarchy were drawn to. He was beginning to be seen as a victim of tyranny, of arbitrary government thrown into the Tower of London, languishing there. He was also being politicised. Never put your political radicals all in one place. Because Raleigh, who was an active parliamentarian, but certainly no theorist of parliamentary power, ended up in the Tower of London with men who were active parliamentarians and theorists of parliamentary power. And one of the works he wrote in prison in the Tower of London, an innocent title, it's called A Dialogue. But 10 years after his death, 
Um, it was published as the prerogative parliament. So it's a defense parliamentary power against absolutist tyrannical monarchy. It's an astonishing work from a prisoner. So the Crown wanted to bury this small matter of getting rid of Raleigh, executing him finally. He was, as I say, people were interested in him. He attracted people who were beginning to find their voices in opposition to the Stuart monarchy. But it was quite literally the final two hours of his life that made him a hero, a symbol of resistance, and led to him becoming, for good or for bad, a kind of icon of English courage, uh, and in the 19th century, English imperial destiny. I've just been hit by a falling <laughs> piece of bark. <laughs> in fact, Raleigh's first bo boat was called Bark Raleigh, so this is this is very is very appropriate. <laughs> okay, so can you can you tell me about his those final moments? Yes, so Sir Walter Raleigh is brought to the scaffold under this complete overkill of an armed guard, and he asks if he can speak to the people, and they stupidly let him. <laughs> And he gives one of the most poised, quotable speeches ever given. And this is a man at point of death. Everybody wrote it down. Everybody circulated. It was an absolute sensation. Raleigh won the day. Uh, he established his reputation. But for me, there's something about his final night that is even more moving, powerful, whatever you want to say. Strong connection with the man because he knows he's going to die in the morning. And he's planning his final great performance, but he's also reflecting on his life. And he's a man I've already mentioned. He, you know, he went twice up the Orinoco. How many people say they did that? He was in the tower three times. He was somebody who kept on repeating history, his own history, and was fascinated by history. And in those final hours, he went back to a poem he'd written as a young man. It's about Raleigh's ideal woman. It's from the years in which he was bluntly a bit of a player. But in my more sentimental moments, I kind of hope it's about the woman he married. It's got some gorgeous lines in it. It's a very typical, you can politely call it a carpe diem poem, or it could be a get your kit off poem. It's one of those poems that male poets are writing to say to a woman, you're going to be old and ugly soon, so let's get to it, darling. But it's beautifully done by Raleigh, and it's got these incredible lines in it about the perfect mistress. Her eyes, he would, should be of light, a violet breath and lips of jelly. Her hair not black nor overbright, and this is the line I love, and of the softest down her belly. No abs, no six pack, softest down her belly. And then the final two lines, as for her inside, he'd have it, and I don't think he's being very, very rude there, as for her inside, he'd have it, only of wantonness and wit. This is a sexy, intelligent, slightly chubby woman. It's a great love poem, but... <laughs> As I said, the whole point of the love poem is to celebrate the ideal woman and to warn her that time will get her. She will be old and old and wrinkly. Death will come. And astonishingly, it's that poem that Raleigh goes back to in his final moments. He only has one book. He only has one pen. He only has a little bit of ink. But he writes in the flyleaf of his Bible a final verse to that poem. He, he ditches the erotics of it. He ditches the beautiful woman. And instead, he writes about time and death closing our stories and then he adds two lines to the poem that he'd written so many years earlier which show the most tentative 
most cautious of faiths. I find it very moving. Here it is. Even such is time that takes interest, our youth, our joys, and all we have, and pays us but with age and dust, who in the dark and silent grave, when we have wandered all our ways, shuts up the story of our days. But from which earth and grave and dust the Lord shall raise me up, I trust. Yes. Even on the scaffold, even facing death, Raleigh led the crowd in prayer. But this was a man who had an atheism inquiry, and that really was a serious matter in 1593. A man who was profoundly sceptical about religion. A man who had met the Native American peoples who had no contact with Christianity, obviously, for so many years. He was a relativist, a cultural relativist, but in those final moments, I, I think some kind of faith sustained him, though people did notice that he mentioned God, but he never mentioned Christ, and questions were asked. As you were reading that the sun came out, it was a real moment <laughs> in Old Palace Yard. If anybody who's listening to this, if you can actually make it down here and just sit and listen to Anna's words, I think you'd find it equally as powerful. Your book has talk, talks about Raleigh as an explorer, patriot, traitor, but above all of those things, for you, he was a writer. I think that's how I met him, and that has stayed with me. A man of action who thought long and hard about his actions, but a man who loved words, abused words as well. He was a compulsive liar, and I think a lot of times he believed his own lies. A dangerous man in many ways, but it is his command of his wit that draws me back to him every time. Anna, thank you so much. I knew little to nothing about Walter Raleigh before our conversation and you taught me so much and what, what a fantastic story, a fantastic adventurer and you know, his life is an adventure. Mm. And to be able to look at his life in the context of Elizabethan London as well really brings that to life too. So we will certainly see you back on the podcast again. Thank you very much indeed. When is your book out? When can people buy it? It is in bookshops. The actual anniversary is the 29th of October. And if you really want to get goosebumps, come to Old Palace Yard on the 29th of October and hope for a damp, chilly autumn London morning because that's exactly what it was like on the 29th of October, 1618. Are you going to be here? I'm not going to say. Remind us again of the title of your book. It's called Patriot or Traitor, The Life and Death of Sir Walter Raleigh. And where can we find you on social media? Primarily on Twitter, at Anna Rose Beer, where there's a lovely picture of Raleigh and a map, because the other thing that Raleigh loved was maps, and I, too, share his passion. Yes, everyone go out and buy a book. It is fantastic. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.